0: Hello and welcome to Creative Lives, the Lecture in Progress podcast. Lecture in Progress is an online resource that inspires and informs the next generation of talent by providing practical advice and day-to-day insight into the creative industry. This podcast series features creatives sharing what they do and how they got to where they are. This week's guest is artist and illustrator Malika Favre and was recorded on November 13th at her home studio in East London.
1: I approach illustration probably from more of a graphic design angle because this is my background. So I do work that's very minimalist, uh, very bold and colorful and sometimes a little bit sexy.
0: Malika's work has made her one of the most sought-after illustrators working today. From editorial to advertising, her many clients include Vogue, BAFTA, Penguin Books and The New Yorker,
1: my clients and the type of work I do has changed over the years as well. So uh, I started by doing a, a lot of editorial, and then you know, with the success of editorial, I, you know, I got on to do um, bigger like advertising campaigns and things like this. Always doing personal work on the side as well, my own work. Uh, lately, uh, I'm doing uh, almost no advertising. And uh, went back to focusing, actually, on what I was doing at the beginning, which is a lot of editorial covers, and a lot of, yeah, working a lot for magazine because this is what I really, really love to do.
0: Originally from Paris, Maliki grew up in a creative family, but her career started out on a distinctly different path. I wanted to be a psychiatrist.
1: I was obsessed by serial killers. I wanted to study serial killers, I don't know why. <laughs> That's when I was ten. Uh, <laughs> then I wanted to become an engineer. I did a scientific A level, and uh, the first thing I studied was physics and math, but not for very long after high school. I mean, yeah, a couple of months, and then I realized like, just not for me. Like, but it wasn't even like I loved. I loved the subject. I loved it, but uh, I was really scared by the people around me as well. Like, I really didn't feel. I, I didn't feel that I was. I was. I was fitting in. Like. And for me, I knew that at the end of the day, it's also about the people like you need to live in an environment where you feel like you can be yourself. And I was a little bit too weird, at least at school, you know, because uh, I looked a little bit too crazy, I think, for to become an engineer. But, uh, but I don't know. I will never know. I will never know what would have happened if I, uh, if I stayed. But, uh, but after that, like, you know, I quickly, uh, I was 19 and I, I decided, OK, I need to give art a shot. I'd never studied it, but I'd been, you know, I was drawing all the time and my mum was an artist. So uh, so that's when I went to art school and studied graphic design. come from a family with uh, the least materialistic family you can think of, which is funny because my grandfather was a businessman and a very successful one. Um, he was very good at making money and he had five kids who uh, didn't care at all about that. So they all ended up, uh, you know, working in, you know, uh, social enterprises or arty things and so we were struggling a little bit with money and I think they grew up you know in opposition to their own father and me and my brother grew up in opposition to my parents and for me that meant that uh, because I we didn't have much money I wanted to make money it became something important and art didn't seem like a viable option and it took me, but you know, I was a teenager and I was stubborn and, you know, attracted by the wrong things. And, and actually, I realized later on that, and even now, I realized that uh, I'm not driven by money. I will never will be. It's, uh, it's actually, I'm much more like my father than I thought I was, driven by freedom. I just got lucky enough to find a job that also brings money. <laughs> I got really lucky because I came to London to, uh, and actually I studied in London one year uh, in Farnham. Studying digital media, but it was more an excuse to kind of have a year abroad and have a bit of fun and have an experience, you know, in the UK. And that's why I discovered all the graphic design studios in London, and one of them was Airside. And this was the first time I think I saw them in Le Book back then. And uh, I think it's, it's the last year they actually advertised in Le Book. So funny enough, and I saw the work, and I was I started looking at their work on inside on internet. And I was, I was amazed because here it was, like it was a, a studio that was doing heavy, heavy use of illustration in all their work. But none of the illustrators were freelance. And for me, I wasn't an illustrator and I didn't want to be freelance. Like I didn't. Again, I still thought it wasn't viable. So I wanted to be a graphic designer, but I wanted to use um, illustration as well. So I applied. I was a little bit cheeky because uh, I sent them, I believe I sent them an email to do an internship. Three, they were doing three month internship. And I sent them an email uh, with my portfolio, which was awful, well, now that I think of it. And I received a you know, very polite, uh, generic, uh, no email back. And then, I don't know how, like two months later, I received an email from Nat Hunter, who was one of the founders, saying, Oh, has anyone replied to your email yet? And I think I forgot because I tend to forget the negative things in my life. So I forgot, I was like, no one replied, no. And somehow she kept my PDF somewhere and was like, I need to reply to her or whatever. And she told me, okay, do you want to come in next week and have an interview maybe? And uh, and I came in for an interview. And back then, you know, Airside was, uh, one of the founders was Fred Deakin from Lemon Jelly, but there were three founders, but he seemed, you know, of course the fact that there was one of the Lemon Jelly guys, you know, as a founder of Airside was attracting a lot of clients. And one of the first questions that uh, that Nat asked me is, you know, so you're a fan of lemon jelly and, you know, do you like, because they had done all them CD covers and I was like, never heard of them. And she was like, good, you're hired. <laughs> but it was one of these funny things where she was like, okay, no, she actually really, she just doesn't want to like work with Fred. She actually really loves all the work we do. And um, and I got a three-month internship there uh, and I worked like an absolute nutcase. Like they were calling me the machine. I was I wanted it so badly, and uh, and eventually, uh, even though they couldn't hire me straight away, I had to wait for one of the designers to leave, to get a job. So I waited for a year. I went to work at Unit Nine in between, and uh, and then a year later they offered me a job. And that was my only, you know, I had two jobs: Unit Nine and Airside. For me, like the way Airside was working is, we're giving you a lot of freedom. We're doing lots of fun stuff. But of course, it doesn't work if people put their names on things. You know, it all has to be. You know, we called it the ship. You know, we were all part of the ship, and of course, everyone knew. You know, who was doing what, and some styles were. But it wasn't like a. They didn't want it to become a collective of illustrators. They really wanted everything to be signed by Airside, and I think I started. Um, I started doing personal work uh, because of the shop. Airside had a shop, and. It was a beautiful thing because it was like a, a virtuous circle where they were on our downtime. We could produce anything personal. We would present it on Monday to the board. And if they liked it, I mean, to everyone else, if they liked it, you know, it was a vote and we were producing like screen prints, t shirts, jewelry, installation, like anything you wanted, they would pay for it. And uh, the profit from the shop would uh, basically be enough to pay for someone to run the shop. So it wasn't a profit making scheme, but it was to keep their designers happy. And so I did that, and, and and by doing that, I started producing my own work. And I think after five years, there was a glass ceiling at Airside for me as well, because there was no hierarchy, really. There was no like middleweight, senior. You were a designer, and that was the end of it, you know. And uh, and I could see, like, a, there, there wasn't really any further I could go. You know, within the studios, I didn't want to grow. And uh, and I wanted to do other things, and also do my own thing. So I thought, like, OK, man, it's time, I think, I, you know, I, think I, I am actually, it took me like, I was 28 when I realized I was an illustrator and not a designer. So I denied it for most of my life. But for me, that's, you know, that's also when I realized that freedom is what drives me. Like I love traveling and, uh, and uh, I really needed that. And when I went freelance, this luxury of having to, you know, being able to take holidays is something I really embraced. And, uh, and yeah, I don't regret that. So when I did, you know, when I handed out my notice and and realized that actually I wanted to become, you know, to be an independent illustrator, I looked for an agent pretty much straight away. I I didn't really know this world and uh, I don't know, it made sense as well not to, you know, I was going from like a team of 12 people to uh, be working alone. So I think probably I was a little bit scared by by that. And... uh, And yeah, and also I knew that uh, I know the value of having someone to, uh, you know, help you develop your work and give you advice as well at the beginning, you know, on what type of projects uh, you should take on. And also I had no ideas of the fees because uh, illustrator fees or fees in general is the best kept secret of the industry. No one talks about money. It just felt like for me it was like a safety net. And actually the idea was maybe I'll get an agent for a couple of years and once I know everything, I'll dump them. (laughs) Never (laughs) happened. (laughs) I don't think you need an agent. Like necessarily these days, because uh, the time, the times when you know an agent had a little black book of all the creative directors in town and you know was your kind of bridge to reaching the agencies is dead. Now the creative directors are on Instagram. You know your work. You can you can advertise your own work. You don't need them for that. But if you, for me, the best thing about having an agent is to let them handle the things you don't want to handle, so it doesn't take space in your brain and you have more time to be creative. So uh, if you find an agent, for me the best thing is to try and find an agent that you like, really like as, per- as a person, someone that believes in your work and is going to want to make you evolve. New Yorker for sure, uh, you know, is my favorite client. And in terms of projects, all I love, all the covers, I really, I love them equally, you know, each has its own story. Um, but they were amazing, amazing to do, and, uh, and they give you so much visibility as well, The New Yorker, it's crazy, like, the difference it makes to, to work with them compared to another magazine. So you have different ways of working with them, like, for example, um, at the beginning of each year, they send their artists for the next year a list of potential covers, because sometimes, you know, you've got seasonal ones, you've got Christmas, you've got Halloween, you've got Mother's Day. So you have potential themes that come back so you can work on those in your own time and, you know, just do a bunch of sketches uh, of anything that inspire you, take as much as you want with those and then send it to them, you know, and if they like it, like sometimes they can plan a cover, like, you know, even a month in advance, two months in advance, uh, but then anything can happen, you know, something can happen politically. And, you know, that's newsworthy and will change your cover. But so there is this kind of really long, stretchy time frame. And then when you're also on the special list, <laughs> which is a list of people who work last minute on, a, you know, basically a newsful, you know, news comes in and the cover needs to be ready in the next five hours. So I'm on that list as well. And uh, like the Bob Dylan cover was a cover like this where I got an email at 1 p.m. I sent sketches at 2 by 5 p.m., the cover the cover was done, and on Twitter, it's crazy. But it's it's very rare, you know. Uh, usually, you have uh, even on uh, on other covers that I worked, which were um, usually you have one one day to send sketches, maybe one or two more days to finalize on the kind of last minute covers. But then sometimes, like the cover that was released today, I finished it uh, two and a half weeks ago. So it, it depends. But I don't think it doesn't mean you should be able to work in that you know, time frame. I think some, some people, the work that some people do, some other artists do, it's just not doable. So I think they know that. And for the last minute cover, they ask people who they know can deliver something, which stylist, you know, and um, way of working allows for them to deliver something in three hours. And I think because my work, I try to to come up with the best idea in the time I have. I don't overstretch myself. I think there is nothing worse than producing in two hours, something that should take two weeks. Because the result can't be good, so I think you have to embrace your deadline and uh, and make the best of it in a way. For me, the one of the most important thing is to control your own ego because you have to have an ego. It's like uh, you have to find the right balance. You have to have an ego because that's what drives you forward. That's what wants make you know wants makes you want to uh, to go further and do better work and everything. Uh, and be recognized, but also uh, if you let your ego kind of take over, you become an asshole and uh, no one wants to work with assholes. Like the reality of the industry is that it's some people get away with it probably, but I always believe that it won't be for long. I think, you know, being nice to people and uh, respectful and not taking yourself too seriously and being humble is super, super important. And it will go a long way in the industry. And then it's also, like, for me, uh, uh, you know, another advice would be to stay true to yourself, like, and also, like, basically try to create the kind of work, the kind of work, personal work that you want to be commissioned for. That's very important. Like, not to create a separation between what you think people want to see and what you want to do. uh, And not work for the money. Like, that's, you know, it can, you know... You need to be uh, super demanding with your with yourself, you know, and uh, never be complacent about the kind of work you produce, and yeah, and not stay static, not becoming a one trick pony. Because the industry, especially the commercial industry, is gonna want to milk it and to to you know really suck you dry when you do something that works, and ask you to. i gonna ask you to do the same thing over and over and over again. If you do that, your career is gonna be super short.
0: This episode of Creative Lives was brought to you by Lecture in Progress. It was presented by me, Indy Davis, and the guest was Malika Favre. The producer was Ivor Manley. Lecture in Progress is made possible by the support of a number of brand patrons. They include GF Smith, Squarespace, and the Paul Smith Foundation. Check out lectureinprogress.com for more details.